Thank you very much for um, coming along tonight for what should be a fantastic evening of debate and discussion. Um, I'm Mike Savage. I'm director of the International Inequalities Institute here at the LSE. Before I introduce today's uh, speakers, I want to briefly mention that um, I've been director of the International Inequalities Institute for three years, four years, uh, and we're about to launch some new research themes. And this event is specifically timed to mark the launch of an event of a, of a theme I am leading around the questions of wealth, elites, and tax justice. So we have a number of new researchers at the LSC, a number of PhD students and academics, and over the coming three years, you'll see a lot of activity from us, beginning with an event um, on Monday night, uh, which I believe is also sold out, but if you can, if you can get access or just watch it on YouTube, you are welcome. So um, I'm very excited about that, and I'm really excited about tonight's um, event as a, as a means of launching the significance of these themes. Um, and let me briefly introduce the speakers. So um, Guy Standing is a, a very familiar figure to, to all of us who are concerned with questions of social justice, political activism. Um, he is a prof professorial research associate at SOAS. He's also economic advisor to John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor. He's a council member of the Progressive Economy Forum, and he's known for his extensive writings on universal basic income um, and on the precariat. And, of course, the, the event tonight is focusing upon launching his new book, which will be available for sale to the first few people who can, who can queue up <laughs> afterwards um, on the theme of the plunder of the commons. So, Guy will be speaking for half an hour or so, introducing the book. And then we're really, really lucky, really privileged to have two fantastic, extremely well-known discussants who will each be speaking for, for about ten minutes. Caroline Lucas will follow Guy. He's, she's the MP for Brighton Pavilion since 2009, a former MEP, a former leader of the Green Party, um, and a few years ago she was named as one of the 50 people who could save the planet. Which is quite an accolade. It's me. Um, <laughs> um, David Lammy, uh, well-known campaigning MP for the Labour Party, MP for Tottenham, well-known for his campaigning around issues such as Windrush, uh, Grenfell Towers and Brexit, former minister in the Labour government, minister of culture and for higher education. He has a forthcoming book on tribes to be coming out in a few months' time, and we hope we can get him to, to launch it here too. So it's a fantastic uh, evening. Without further ado, let me pass on to Guy. Well, thank you very much for turning out tonight. Every event has an opportunity cost. You could be doing many other things, so I thank you very much for coming. This is uh, an interesting subject, but I want to begin by mentioning that on November the 6th, 1217, a 10-year-old boy king was in St. Paul's when the regent and a representative of the Pope put their seals to two documents. And those two documents are the foundation stones of the British Constitution. We all know that we don't have a written constitution, but these two documents have always been regarded as the foundation stones of our Constitution. One of them has gone down to be taught to every child in schools 
across this country and most of the world, and it became that day the Magna Carta. The other document is less well known, but for hundreds of years it was regarded as a leading document rather than a secondary document. It was also called a Magna Carta, but it was called the Carta de Foresta, the Charter of the Forest. And it's a remarkable document because it was longer on the British statute books than any other piece of legislation, only being finally repealed in 1971, which I think you'll all agree is quite a thing for longevity. And the Charter of the Forest was the first environmental charter, the first charter to assert that every person has a right to subsistence, a right to work, a right to a home in the commons. And it's often been called the Charter of the Common Man. But that day actually also was marking the first advance for feminism because it gave widows rights where they had never had them before. Now the Charter of the Forest had to be read out four times a year in every church in England for many generations. But it's gone into disuse, shall we put it that way, and has been forgotten. And when in 2015 the Minister of Justice in the House of Lords was asked if there were going to be celebrations for the 800th anniversary, he snuffily said, no, it's not important. As it happened, at roughly the same time, a leading member of the American Bar Association wrote to me and said, actually, the Charter of the Forest was more important than the Magna Carta in formulating the US Constitution. And the essence of the Charter is that it enshrined in our thinking and in our history respect for the commons. What are the commons? The commons belong to nobody and they belong to all of us. They're not private property, they're not state property. They are the resources that we share on the ground, under the ground, the air, the water, the minerals, the many things that could be turned into resources for production. But they're also the social amenities and social services and institutions of our culture and our education that stem from our history. They're the things that come into us as society. And that word society is a key word. Because the book begins by recalling a notorious statement in a rambling interview that Margaret Thatcher gave after the 1987 election in which she said there is no such thing as society. I'm sure you're all aware of her statement. And I've always thought that actually what she really meant was there should be no such thing as society. Because society stands against the market. And she drew her inspiration from a man who spent some time at this institution, uh, Frederick von Hayek. And Frederick von Hayek was 
a disciple of the Austrian School of Economics and was Margaret Thatcher's guru and Ronald Reagan's guru and the message he'd taken from the Austrian School of Economics was that something that has no price has no value and therefore you can give it away or sell it at a discount and take what windfall gains you wish. And her attitude to commons and society and the institutions epitomized that total contempt she had for institutions of social solidarity. So you can interpret what has happened to the commons beginning with the Thatcher years, but continuing through new labor and most dramatically in the austerity decade that we are just in at the moment as the plunder of the commons. Now I want to mention before I continue with how the plunder has taken place a wonderful essay that was written by an amateur economist the Earl of Lauderdale in 1804 and he wrote this essay in which he actually defined what came to be known for generations of economists as the Lauderdale Paradox. And the Lauderdale Paradox essentially was this, that as private riches grow, public wealth declines. It's a paradox. And basically his essay is about how the loss of the commons enriching a minority enables them to put up prices of things that were not commodified and create contrived scarcity. A very nice phrase and you can see the play out of the Lauderdale paradox which modern economists tend to forget or ignore in how the commons have been plundered. And I'll give you one set of statistics. In the 1970s, private wealth in this country was approximately 300% of GDP. Today, it's approximately 700% of GDP. In the 1970s, public wealth was worth about 50% of GDP. Today, it's negative. That's a huge change in the ratio of private wealth and public wealth. And wealth inequality is much, much, much greater than income inequality in this country and in many other countries. And anybody who says that inequality has not grown in the last decade is either naive or an idiot or fundamentally dishonest or all of the above. Because wealth inequality is what has really taken place. Now the interesting thing is the commons, if you look back in medieval history, whenever there was a dispute about what was the commons and what was not a commons, they used to go around the neighborhood looking for the eldest people they could find and get them to come forward, probably had to drag them in their 80s. And if they testified before the local magistrates that something had existed 
and there was a wonderful expression of time out of mind of man. In other words, it had existed since nobody could remember. And gradually that rule became enshrined in legislation so that it was 20 years without being contested. So it was shortened. So something is a commons if it has been in existence as a commons for 20 years. So our National Health Service, for example, became a commons in 1968, 20 years after it had been established as a commons. Now what has happened to our commons? The book divides the commons into five types. The first, which is what most people think about when they talk about the commons, is the natural commons, the land, the seabeds, the air, the water, etc. And in this respect, there have been five waves of enclosure of our land to the extent where Britain is the most concentrated land ownership country in the world. And those five waves of enclosure has essentially transferred what were the commons to private ownership. So the Tudors did it, then we saw happening under, the, under Charles I and Cromwell did it. It goes on, it goes on into the Victorian era when there were 5,000 or more enclosure acts. And of course the greatest grabbing of the commons was by the Duke of Sutherland. The Duke of Sutherland in Scotland, in the infamous clearances, drove 50,000 crofters into the slums of Glasgow or into early death or abroad and took the little matter of 1.5 million acres of land. Today, you will be delighted to know the Duke of Sutherland, his descendant, has the biggest and best private art collection in the country and magnanimously he allows some of us to be able to see part of the collection from time to time, <laughs> if you're prepared to pay. Another man who has benefited from enclosure, I love, I love this man's name so I like saying it, so apologies if I bore you, the Duke of Buclou. Now, the current Duke of Buccleuch happens to be the tenth descendant of an illegitimate child of Charles II. And he inherited the little matter of 277,000 acres of land. Now, that's not bad, really. But he also benefits from having received millions of pounds, and I'm not exaggerating, millions of pounds in subsidies from the successive governments. It should be a scandal. But a lot of big landowners have taken the land. And what Thatcher did, of course, was when she privatized school playgrounds, she took away part of our commons. When she privatized council housing, the land that had been part of our commons became private property, and paradoxically today, much of those council houses that she so-called privatized are now owned by landlords. But in addition, when she privatized water, I'll talk about this briefly in a moment, she gave the new water companies a little matter of 424,000 acres of what had been common land. 
424,000, many of which were not adjacent to water supply. So you can see the process of a privatization of land within closure. And it's continued in the, in the sense that our Forestry Commission, which the Tories and Lib Dems tried to privatize in 2011, in the last 10 years has sold off 11,000 hectares of what are our forests. They have no right to be selling it off or commercializing, as I describe in the book. Now, we've seen a loss of village greens. We've seen our parks under duress. We have 27,000 parks. And because of austerity with cutting budgets, local authorities have not been able to maintain those parks. And in a survey in 2016, 92% of all park managers reported that their parks were under serious deterioration. Not only that, they were having to sell off land and convert part of their parks into what I called, and I don't think it's original, eventism. So public events have to take place in parks in order to pay for maintenance. Battersea Park seems to be an extreme case. They have 600 events each year, which does tremendous damage to the grass, the trees, etc., etc. Now, the other parts of the commons discussed in the book include the loss of urban trees. We've lost 110,000 urban trees in the last few years. It includes the biggest scandal of all, in my view, which is the privatization of water in 1989. What happened was they created nine regional monopolies, private companies, which promptly got huge subsidies from the government and then started to load up those companies with debt and send billions, 18 or 19 billion is my calculation, in profit abroad. Because mainly they are owned by private equity capital now. As if that wasn't enough, the water companies have failed to maintain the pipes. So many of the water companies are losing more water through leakages than are actually supplied to homeowners. But recently, Thames Water was fined, a miserable little fine, for having poured 1.4 billion tons of untreated sewage into the Thames estuaries. 1.4 billion, endangering human life, endangering wildlife, and leading to a situation where with other companies, water companies, today a report says, came out last month, that none of our rivers in England are fit for swimming or drinking water. They got a slap on the wrist so did several other companies. Those companies have even been able to negotiate with the regulator over how much fine they will pay. What, how much should we pay? How much would you like to pay? This is ridiculous. I think you will agree. 
That story to me is one of the scandals of privatization creating contrived scarcity of water, a fundamental part of our commons. It goes on with other parts of the natural commons. I don't have time to talk about them now. They're detailed in the book. The second type of commons are the social commons. The social commons include our housing, which has been in the public domain. We've set a situation where today we have two million fewer council housing units than we did in the 1980s. Two million lost. Social housing has also been slashed. So what has happened is there has been a huge increase, as if most of you didn't know this, in rough sleeping, homelessness. I saw some figures recently where the number of homeless has risen tenfold in the last five years. And two people die every single day on our streets because they don't have homes. And we're meant to be the fifth richest country in the world. Thousands of people have been made homeless, unable to afford a minimal home. But it's not just the homeless thing, which I detail in the book. We've also seen a privatization of something which, when I was a student, we regarded as part of the university system, and that's student digs. Today, 80% of all student accommodation is privately provided. And guess what? The biggest supplier is an American bank, Goldman Sachs. So today, our commons, which were part of the education system, are now being controlled by financial capital. And there's a bigger story here. Because as I was working on the book, I said, Guy, you're missing something. You're, you, you, you're, you're dumb. Because what is the real story? The story I was telling about privatization, commodification, the loss of the social memory, all of these things are there. But what is the biggest story of all? It's the fact that we have experienced a colonization of our commons. In all respects that go, that go through in the book, you find private equity, foreign capital, is actually the biggest owner. They've been taking over. And it goes to with POPs. I love that word, POPs. Privately owned public spaces. Today, large parts of our cities and towns are being converted into POPs. And when dear old Boris Johnson was campaigning to become mayor of London, he bemoaned the corporatization of London. He said he was going to stop it. The first thing he did when he became mayor was he went, all expenses paid, lavish trip to the Far East, to Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, and various other places, urging property companies and others to come and buy bits of London. So today we have Singapore on Thames, we have Malaysia Square, we, the London Mayor's HQ is foreign owned. We have Paternoster Square owned by Mitsubishi. And large parts of other towns, less ceremonially documented, have been moving in the same 
direction. I look at the social commons and I see the various parts disappearing, playgrounds, youth clubs, all the aspects of allotments shrinking. We used to have 1.5 million allotments, today we have about 250,000. You can see a shrinkage of the social commons, which is really a tragedy. But it's the next chapter of the book that I, I apologize to anybody who wants to read the book, because the author clearly was a very angry man. <laughs> and, and, and you know, you have to apologize for this sense of anger, because it's the loss of the civil commons. The Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest laid down foundational principles of common law. We had to have respect for custom, for precedent, for accountability, proportionality, and most fundamentally of all, for the principle of due process. Due process means that if you're charged with something, you must have the chance to represent yourself or be represented. There must be a process of independent judges. There must be a process of evidence, of independence. And yet in place after place and in different ways, that respect for due process has gone. We have today a situation with ASBOs and CRIMBOs and other various O's where we put orders down so if people behave in a way that neighbors don't like, they can be subject to fines or treatment, but without due process. In our social policy, a bureaucrat, probably unqualified, working for a private company, can sanction a claimant, you didn't do X, Y, or Z, you're losing your benefits without due process, without any pretense of an independent trial of evidence or any respect. And think about it. If you're a poor claimant, losing your benefits is disproportionate to anything you might have done, like missing an appointment or something like that. The due process extends into POPs. People are not aware that POPs can be self-policed and you can have somebody tap you on the shoulder and say you've broken a law and you say, what law? You've broken the law and you can be fined. The new one they've got, they've privatized litter monitoring. So that in many places, a private company can tap you on the shoulder and say, you dropped a piece of litter there, you have to pay a hundred pound fine. I'm not exaggerating, it could be 150. Imagine, if you're a very poor person, what that means. We've had a disrespect for many aspects of due process. I won't go into them, but that chapter, maybe you should skip it like Oscar Wilde's famous thing, skip the chapter on the rupee, it's too exciting. <laughs> the next chapter is on the loss of our cultural commons. I was hoping David Edgar would be here this evening. He sent me an email of apology. But I empathize a lot with, with his views on this subject. We have lost the cultural commons and any respect for our cultural commons. 
starting with public architecture. Back in the 70s, 50% of all architects were, were working for local authorities, and they were the stewards, the stewards of our public architecture. Today, fewer than 1% of architects work for local authorities. Been privatized, we've lost control of the landscape of our cities and towns. If you look at museums, the slashing of budgets on museums and art galleries have been greater than the slashing of any other expenditure, partly because they're not statutorily required. So nearly half of all our local authority museums now have to operate on a part-time basis. You see it going on in the theater, moving to the American model, relying on private donors, big fat cats, who can determine what is shown, what is not shown, influence self-censorship self and all that stuff. And I mention one story, which I'd like to mention this evening because it means a lot to me, and it mainly means some people here who know Tower Hamlets. Henry Moore made a beautiful statue, it's called Old Flow, and he bequeathed it to Tower Hamlets, and he wanted it to be put in a place of a low-down working-class area to try and beautify the area. He donated it to this council estate in 1957 for a nominal fee. And then in the austerity era, a mayor, fortunately since driven out of office for being corrupt, but a mayor decided to sell Old Flow for 20 million pounds. Now Old Flow had been deliberately put by Henry Moore as part of the commons. They didn't know what to do and eventually they decided to move Old Flow to a park in Yorkshire while they decided what to do with it. The irony is this. They have returned Old Flow, but they have put it in a pops, in a gentrified area of Canary Wharf where billionaires and oligarchs own all the flats, and today it beautifies a pops. I have a feeling that Henry Moore would not be overjoyed but the loss of the cultural commons is something I urge you to think about. The final set of commons, and I have to be very brief here, is the loss of the knowledge commons. The knowledge commons are threefold. The first is information. We all have a right to have access to a broad range of information that's objective and supplied from a diverse perspective. But you can see, with the colonization of our media, with the emergence of Netflix and the big five tech from Silicon Valley, that they've gradually enclosed and monopolized and manipulated our information. And there's a lovely quotation I took from a Nobel Prize winning economist. And he said, some years ago, he said, what have we lost with information? We have lost a wealth of attention. 
We are suffering from a collective attention deficit disorder. We can't concentrate and we're manipulated. You all know this story, I won't go into it. But it is really a part of the loss of our commons. The second part is the intellectual commons. I've written an earlier book called The Corruption of Capitalism where I go into that in more detail. But essentially what has happened is that ideas, ideas that are, as Jefferson said, not by nature the subject of property. Today, ideas have been converted more and more into private property through the US intellectual property rights regime that was entrenched in TRIPS in 1994, which I discuss in the book. Since TRIPS was passed, millions more patents have been taken out, millions more copyright industrial designs. And what has happened, as I document, is that actually it's slowed down innovation. It's led to a monopolization of the controllers of intellectual ideas. The big five have bought up hundreds of companies just to get their patents. So these big five string together millions of patents and make billions of profits by being monopolists. But I warned John McDonnell, and I say this to David and Caroline as well, beware of coming into office with a program to recover our commons. Beware of what's called the ISDS, the Investor State Dispute Settlement. What they've done is set up a system of three judges and if a company says, a foreign company operating in Britain or anywhere else says, you are taking a policy decision which is affecting my future profits, you're not allowed to do that. And therefore you should be banned. They can do that. They have three judges. One is appointed by the company, one is appointed by the government, and the other one has to have the company's approval. <laughs> now if I'm not mistaken, that's not democratic. <laughs> And if they can't agree, then the president of the World Bank decides. And he is always an American citizen. So you will not be surprised that the United States has never lost a case before the ISDS. But let me tell you one little story. The local authority of Hamburg was very worried that a chemical plant owned by a foreign company was polluting the river and all the fish were dying. So it introduced a policy of controlling the pollution. The company sued before the ISDS and Hamburg local authority had to rescind the policy and pay a huge fine of $50 million to the company. So if we wanted to recover our commons, we better be careful because that could happen to us. And the final part of the commons is the education commons. I needn't go into detail with you here. We've lost the sense of education being subversive in character, being teaching us to think, teaching us to be citizens, teaching us to be critical. 
We're now told we've got to pass exams. We're now told more and more we've got to be commodified. We're teaching teachers to apply the same rules. And the defining event there was the Jarrett report of Thatcher and Keith Joseph, which said that henceforth universities should not be run by scholars like Mike here, but by financiers and business people. Once that happened, you lose the capacity of an education commons. But there are other respects in which I go into in the book. The final remarks I want to make are this. In the book, I proposed a charter of the commons for the 21st century. It has 44 articles. Most of those articles are about recapturing, reviving our commons. They're low-hanging fruit. This government has been operating a natural capital committee, for example, which is trying to put a value on every bit of our nature. It should be closed tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning or this evening. It is totally useless, but it's perverting our sense of our values, our sense of our commons. But there are many other low-hanging fruit items. But the final chapter is saying we should establish a national commons fund. We should put a levy on all those who are taking advantage of one of our commons or another of our commons. We should put levies on that, shift the taxation system, if you like, away from consumption and income towards wealth and usurping our commons. And as that builds up that fund, you have to apply basic principles. The basic principle of do no harm with the money. The fund should only invest in ecological, sustainable degrowth objectives, if you like. But fundamentally, the only way to make that an instrument of social justice, of common justice, is to say that the dividends paid out of this fund should be given to every commoner equally. Every commoner, and we're all commoners, should have an equal dividend from that commons fund. And the levies that I propose, like a frequent flyer levy, uh, a digital data levy, all of these things which relate to loss of our commons, I estimate that without much difficulty, they could create a fund in year one of up to 200 billion pounds. That fund, as it builds, could pay out common dividends to everybody, and it's the best way of affording a basic income. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much, Guy, for such a fantastic and rousing speech. And now, without further ado, on to Caroline Lucas. Well, uh, follow that. Huge thanks to Guy, both for that uh, fantastic presentation, for his book, and for the fact that he's introduced me to a whole set of things that I have to confess I had no idea of. So, for example, I didn't know about the Charter of the Forests, um, and when I read the book and, in fact, had some conversations with, with Guy in the, uh, in the run-up to the, to the writing of the book, 
I just felt this was tremendously inspiring to see what people were thinking 800 years ago and crucially how relevant that is to today's world as well. And so I think the first thing I wanted to say to, to Guy really was, was to thank him for really demonstrating what's been done before and therefore what can be done again and to really take heart from that really inspiring vision that drove that charter of the forests. Because as well as providing legal protection for commoners to gain access and use of common land, for example, it was, as Guy said, among the first statutes of environmental law in the history of any nation. So yes, it forced the monarchy to return enclosed lands to the commons. That's pretty extraordinary in itself. But it also began to set out implicit limits on the exploitation of natural resources. It established norms for the use of those natural resources. It established principles like the condition that one person's actions couldn't be at the expense of a neighbor's potential action. So in a sense, these are very kind of modern concepts. And I think it's really exciting to look back and see how that was part of our law for the best part of 800 years and how we could perhaps learn from that moving forward from today. Because I want to pay tribute to, to Guy in this book for setting out with such grim precision just how much of our Commonwealth has been flogged off in recent years, how austerity and deregulation and privatization have depleted our shared wealth, with the national utilities sold off, with social housing under ever-increasing threat, with our parks cordoned off for private events, with our art galleries sponsored by banks and oil companies. But while I thank him for that kind of grim precision of, of looking at all of the bad things that have happened, I want to thank him even more for offering hope, because although you would necessarily get that from, uh, from Guy's presentation, and he is rightly very angry about the way in which the commons have been sold off, our commonwealth has been sold off, I actually found this book a really hopeful book, because I think the precedent that he cites is inspiring, and I think the 44 articles of his new charter for a new form of commoning is incredibly timely. And I think that's the, the thing I wanted to focus on in a sense was that idea that it feels that right now is exactly the right time for this book, for this analysis. And that there's something about the current political settlement that has something of a kind of emperor's new clothes feeling about it. Because if you look at some of the, you know, the big movements that are happening in politics today, the school climate strikes, for example, or Extinction Rebellion, or the movement behind the Green New Deal, all of them, I think, have something in common, and that is that they absolutely, upfront, unapologetically, reject neoliberal economics and business-as-usual politics. That they call for a real shift away from the status quo in terms of that competitive self-interest and individualism that guides our economics today towards a radically different future, one based on compassion, on solidarity, and collective action. So it seems to me that such a future would allow both human and nature to flourish, and it can be found in a renewed understanding precisely of the commons, alongside a determined commitment to end its plundering. So I, I think this is a really hopeful moment, and exactly the moment that we need this kind of analysis. And I wanted to just touch on three 
very specific areas that Guy has already touched on briefly, the welfare system, our natural environment, and our digital commons. Because when it comes to the welfare system, I think we have a real opportunity to reimagine our relationship with the state. And even for those of us who absolutely reject the kind of the austerity narrative that kind of says that, well, scroungers have been bringing the welfare system down to its knees and we have to punish them, even for those of us who, of course, reject that, I think there can still be sometimes something that creeps into our analysis about social security that is at odds with the reality. I think too often we've become accustomed to thinking about social security as a kind of glorified charity, something of a, of a favor, not something which is a fundamental right in any civilized society. Because we've been conditioned to forget that that right is part of citizenship, and it is not conditional on previous good conduct. It is not conditional, for example, on a record of previous payments into a system that has systematically discriminated, particularly against women and carers in the past, for example. I think Guy's book allows us to think about turning that around and recognizing that you know, the Department for Work and Pensions is frankly dependent on us, not the other way around. We, the people, employ the state to carry out a simple administrative task on our behalf, the collection and distribution of some of our resources for the common good. And that should be the bottom line of how we look at welfare and social security going forward. And to politicize that contract or to use it to punish people for being disabled or homeless or young or for certain of the life choices that they've made, as has been done by successive governments, I think is a complete breach of the social contract. So the current debate on welfare is framed by the idea that spending on welfare is somehow a bad thing. It's something we've got to try to stop doing, we've got to cut it. But that's like saying that the NHS is failing because it has to treat the victims of road accidents. The real problem is governments making employment a core economic goal, rather than the goal of our economy being, as I think it should be, the well-being of all of its people. Because the current way of thinking about uh, the economy and, and the idea that we've got to chase more and more GDP growth and we've got to chase more and more jobs, whether or not they're good jobs or bad jobs, means that we, in a sense, have an easy short-term route of prioritizing GDP growth above everything else, and that relies on two delusions. First, that in a richer country, everyone will benefit. And second, that rising GDP will mean more jobs, more security, and crucially, a better quality of life. Because in fact, since the 1980s, we've seen greater inequality, rising poverty of opportunity, greater job insecurity, and deep-rooted chronic unemployment blighting the lives of millions of fellow citizens. And that has happened even as, if you look at it in total, GDP appears to be rising. So the Green Party wants to turn that on its head, starting with the proposed basic income that Guy has written so compellingly about. A single payment made to everyone as a fundamental right, which replaces benefits for those not in paid work and replaces tax credits and allowances for those who are. And I think the benefits of that are manifold, with one of them being an opportunity to restore a moral basis to our welfare system. Because a basic income would embed the principle of our collective well-being as the most valuable goal of any welfare system and indeed of any economic system. 
And so I really appreciate what Guy says about that in his book. He says the case for instituting a basic income as an anchor in our new 21st century income distribution system does not rest on the common assumption that robots and artificial intelligence will cause mass unemployment or that it would be a more efficient way of relieving poverty than current social assistance, although it would. The main arguments are ethical. And I think that's a really exciting moment, really, to put ethics back at the heart both of our economy and of our welfare system. Now, there are numerous pilots of schemes that are happening around the world that we can learn from in terms of how we might roll out a basic income. But the one that I take most hope from is actually a tiny one that Rutger Brehman writes about in his book, Utopia for Realists. He explains, and I, and I quote, there was a small experiment in London, it was very small, with 13 homeless men. They each received 3,000 pounds as a personal budget to spend how they wanted. A lot of people were very skeptical of that experiment, but a year later, nine of the 13 had a roof over their head. Two more had applied for housing and it actually saved everyone a lot of money. The experiment cost 50,000 pounds in total and probably saved hundreds of thousands in all of the associated costs of those men remaining homeless. So I think that pilot is powerful because it challenges all of our assumptions and the twisted ideologies that underpin our current welfare system, most notably that threats and fear alone are how you motivate people whilst kindness and compassion are signs of weakness. I think such a deeply misanthropic take on humanity is anathema to my belief in the commons and to its inherent potential for allowing us all to live larger lives. But it's not only humans that might flourish if we reimagine our relationship between our economic and our social goals. I think there's also a powerful case for a basic income helping with the biggest moral, political and economic crisis that we face right now, and that is the climate and nature emergency. As authors of The Human Plant, Simon Lewis and Mark Maslin write, to usher in a new way of living, the core dynamic of ever greater production and consumption of goods and resources must be broken, and a citizen's income would be a significant step towards limiting and breaking the link between work and consumption. So as you know, our current economic model is basically designed with consumption as the payback for being ever more productive at work. Essentially, all of us are persuaded to go out to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to make impressions that don't last on people we don't even really care very much about. And that is essentially to keep the economy moving forwards, GDP going up, consumption happening, and we are supposed to be happier as a result. Well, not only are we not happier as a result, and there's a lot of evidence for that, but we are also completely trashing our environment in the process. And if you were in any doubt about the urgency of getting on, off this collision course that we're currently on with climate catastrophe, then the recent um, IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports, hopefully will have really made it very, very clear when they say that we now have 11 years to get off that collision course, 11 years to halve global emissions and hit net zero by the middle of the, of, of the century, and many of us would say that that is not actually fast enough. But the bottom line is that if we've got an economy that's based on consuming more and more stuff, if all of us are employed in jobs that is about creating more and more stuff, we are not going to get off that collision course. The publication in May of the UN's first global assessment of the state of the world's nature for 15 years identifies the growth of the global economy and specifically the growth of material consumption in affluent nations 
as one of the major driving forces behind the destruction of our living planet. And as the economist Kenneth Boulding famously said that anyone who thinks that you can have exponential economic growth on a planet of finite resources is either a madman or an economist. <laughs> so, I think that this new approach to our economy and to our social contract can also help us get us off the collision course we're currently on with climate catastrophe, to build economies that restore the commons, to build economies that are distributive and regenerative by design, rather than being divisive and degenerative by default. And very finally, I just wanted to say a few words about, about the digital commons, because it feels to me that, relatively speaking, the digital commons is still a fairly new uh, area where we still do have, if we act very fast, an opportunity to establish some core principles that have been eroded in relation to so many other parts of the commons. Clearly, the internet can be the most democratic space in society, and we have to work hard to protect that where it is the case. It is the ultimate shared resource created by the people owned and potentially governed by them. And yet we've seen, as we know, all of this shifted towards it being defined primarily as a marketplace with consumers at its heart. We've got a thriving digital capitalism where monopolies are currently virtually unchallenged. Online is also home to surveillance capitalism. At its most benign, that's when you search for sofas uh, on, on adverts, and then when every, every other website you go to suddenly flashes up all of those sofas. But at its most pernicious, it's the harvesting and sale of our data and the manipulation of elections and of all that we think and believe. So no wonder we have called for regulation. We need to enshrine the principle that as citizens, we own our data, not private companies. If it's collected for one person, for one purpose, it should not be used for any other purpose. And no amount of small print should make it okay to sell our data on. We should have to give explicit permission for that to happen. Net neutrality means ending the advantage, such as greater access to online platforms, depending on how much you can pay, especially at election time. All campaigns should have equal access. And one, one way I want to just leave you uh, to think about is one way we might do this is, is to think about, and this is a bit blue sky thinking admittedly, but how can we bring Google and Amazon and Facebook into public ownership? Now let's think creatively about the ownership of public space on the internet. Now Mark Zuckerberg himself has said that he wants to take the long view and build the new social infrastructure to create the world we want for generations to come. So I think we should be taking him up on that very kind offer and suggesting that he might lead the way by making the area of the commons that he has so much monopoly control of actually back into our hands as well. Thank you, Caroline. And last but not least, David Lemmy. So um, the good news is that Guy and Caroline and myself are friends. Um, and they're such good friends that for an event that's meant to end at 8 o'clock uh, and allow half an hour for questions, they've allowed me three minutes <laughs> time with you. Um, so we're going to have to stray a bit beyond that. Um, it's also to say that this book is so on point um, that hot off the press, um, we find out 
that Boris Johnson is seeking to prorogue Parliament again uh, from next Tuesday. So you see that this desire to abolish the Commons is... <laughs> seriously... a political project. Look, I'm biased because Guy Standing is a professor at SOAS uh, where I studied. Um, so of course I'm biased that this is a brilliant book. But as I, I mean, I have been talking to Guy as he was writing this book and actually thinking about my own book, I want to just offer some reflections because I think that this is almost a sort of manifesto, in a sense, for how we might begin to come back together again in a post-Brexit environment. Now, you know what I want that environment to be, but even those of us who would argue quite passionately that it's in our best interest to remain within the European Union. I hope, and I know Caroline's led on this subject as well, we're also of the view that serious reform is necessary both within our country and within the European Union. So the first place I want to start is just reflecting a bit on why, why we all sat here, listened to Guy, and sat in silence and in awe and in that familiar academic environment where we were learning so much in half an hour that we did not own, that we did not know before. And I want to suggest that there is a serious problem that this sense of the common has not been owned by the people or by the civic. Great research, something that um, was established in the 13th century, but not something that was owned by the people. Why is that? What's that about? And it must cut to the heart, to some, in some respects, as to the kind of country that we are. Now, um, I'm concerned and I raised this in my first book, about the liberalism that came out of the Enlightenment that gets us to this point. If you bring that right up to date into the 20th century, um, we of course celebrate two major revolutions. First, the um, social liberal revolution of the 1960s, brings ethnic minorities to this room, brings women to this room, uh, gaining ownership over their own bodies for, because of the invention of the pill and women's rights and other things, gay men and women to this room. Um, we celebrate that and my party owns much of that agenda in this country. But what it did also was it gave us a powerful sense of our individual rights and sometimes our collective rights, if we were part of a group. And look, I spend a lot of time defending minorities in this country. 
But that sense of shared, a shared community, uh, somehow sometimes weakened by that powerful sense of my right, me, myself and I, but not what we all share. The second, of course, deeply pernicious, is the laissez-faire liberal economic, neoliberal economic agenda that has decimated any sense of what we share. It means that we live in a society that attaches far more value, if you like, to the consumer and to the client um, and very little value to the citizen. But even if, even as I say the phrase citizen, the truth is in this country, we're not citizens. We're subjects. As we found out when Jacob Rees-Mogg tricked the Queen. I've got to tell you, uh, for Boris Johnson, I mean, I know he's been, um, you know, he's wronged quite a number of women over the years, but to pick on a 93-year-old monarch <laughs> is saying something. But it goes back to this sense that we are subjects. And so what is powerful in this proposition is also that sense that we can finally own what is common and have a stake in what is common, not just rely on others to preach that to us. But what will it require? Well, I think it's got to require um, some sort of written constitution. And the need for that is now patently clear. If we don't put this stuff down, if we don't hold up our thinkers and say that this is a moment, then how can we, how can we possibly own this stuff, I think, is essential. The other is um, reimagining our local space and what we share locally. This is that, and, and that is a sense that when I think of that common, and it came across in those early chapters, Actually, it takes you to local and neighbourhood level in terms of owning and occupying that common. And of course, in our country, the local has been decimated. It's vanished. Local authorities are not powerful organisations. My local authority, uh, the London Borough of Haringey, has lost 59% of its real terms funding. But the reality of that loss is not just financial. It's actually losing less and less control over what you deliver, what you offer in that common sense. Guy talked about council housing, uh, but I lament and am deeply concerned about quality youth services and we see of course in our capital city the decimation of life and values for so many young people leading to this current crisis of murder and knife crime that is a loss of the common and what we own and what we share and it does also cut to our values and how we i mean if you can't 
If the state is not holding its young people, something has gone very, very, very badly, badly wrong. I think of the places that I occupied in the 70s before much of this disaster began. The local library as that neighbourhood centre of learning where because it was understood that not everyone could have all the books, um, you could go and discover. I think of further education, the nightmare currently of our former Prime Minister Theresa May saying that we should bring back grammar schools when what we need to bring back are night schools. That great vision that was had in the early part of the 20th century that led to this explosion of municipal colleges where people could get a stake in what was common, subsidised, often for free or very, very cheap, to participate in the common working life, but also the educational life of a community. Disappeared, vanished. If you're lucky enough in London to get to City Lit or Birkbeck, you can access it. But for much of the country, that has disappeared. And it's also on that local level to remind this audience that the North-South divide in our country is bigger than at any time since 1911. Yes, the London economy may have picked up to some extent post the 2008 crash, but clearly for vast tracts of places like the East Midlands, the North, the seaside town, that activity is deeply hollowed out. It's a wonder that the Brexit story is a story of decay, a story of impoverishment, a story of great, great bitterness. And in this toxic atmosphere, where there's an absence of what we share, what we have collectively, of the common, come the shysters. It's the populist nationalists that come along and they sell you a different story. It's not a story about what we can come together on and share. It's not a story about a social common, a knowledge common, a civic common. It's a story that's as old as the Bible. It's basically, if you feel a sense of loss, if you, if there's a, if you don't feel a, a stake in your society, it's not their fault for denying you that ownership. It's Iqbal's fault for moving in next door. It's the European Union's fault for stripping you of this. It's basically the other. And the danger of that vision is what it then does, what it then corrodes and what's happening in our country is after a period, despite Thatcherism, where we might have had a civic nationalism which we can all share, which we can all buy into, wherever you're from in the country, whatever your background, we get this virulent, nasty, ethnic nationalism in which there is a pecking order and so many of us are lower down that pecking order because somebody else came and took the little that you have. And it's why 
I think this agenda is so hugely, hugely important. And I just want to touch on a couple of other very important themes. The first is not to forget that when you hollow out, when you turn us all because of this hyped up, super individualized, liberal, neoliberal culture, you, you also get a powerful sense that when the going gets tough, you are on your own. And when you create that culture, you get a crisis of mental health. You get a crisis of loneliness. It's rampant across both our culture and many Western cultures. Technology driving some of it, but a huge amount of loneliness at the core of our society. This morning, I got the most horrendous death threat. Um, language was all racist. It was because of my position on Brexit, but it was the determination to see me dead in Tottenham that really chilled my staff and me. I have no doubt that the individual that wrote that, because I've been to the cases, I've seen them, is desperately lonely, feels a desperate impoverishment in the community from which they come. We have to do this, we have to sort this out if we don't want to turn in on ourselves and become ever more both politically tribal but also socially tribal. That's the consequences of not addressing this agenda. It's also to say, when we talk about the common, and this is where um, my book, uh, that guys give me some useful advice on, that will come out um, early next year, kicks in. When we talk about the common, the phrase I use in my book is how can we develop an encounter culture? Uh, because, of course, the whole idea of the common is that you come across one another. You're not there in your individualized silos. You are meeting and interacting. Uh, you are sharing. That was the joy of the night school vision I gave you before. That's the joy of creating wonderful libraries, uh, creating wonderful parks and places where people can be that have not been commercialized or taken away. It's how do we encounter one another in a modern sense. I'd like to see, for example, a compulsory civic service where our young people can come together. Why do I say that? Because it's great for young people here at the LSE and at Russell Group Universities and at universities broader than that, but I worry hugely about young people uh, in this country who are not academic who do not come to university, who get a very, very different deal and settlement in this country. And so I say, where do our young adults actually come together for a civic common purpose? And that's a question that I think we've got to ask ourselves most definitely. And rather than leaving it to individual initiative and to community initiative, and you know, a good example of that are food banks, which of course are common, but are desperately depressing and sad to see in our society. How can the state 
how can what we pay our taxes for step back into a space that creates a safety net? In a few weeks' time, you'll see um, Ken Loach's new film, which is effectively about what Guy wrote previously on the precariat. It's about zero-hour contracts. And as I watch this poignant, powerful Ken Loach film, I reflected on a society in which, and this is not, you know, the idea of, I'd hate that phrase, the gig economy, because it sort of yeah. evokes Shoreditch and a playwright who's doing Deliveroo at the weekends. Uh, I, <laughs> Ken Loach's film is about what Guy wrote about previously. It's about how this culture strips families of their dignity and their humanity. Um, it's about that choice and that ramped up individualism that I talked about that's actually not a real choice. You're not really given that choice when you're given this contract and this pick and mix. You're actually denied hours, can't sleep, poor money, fall into debt, all of those things. Um, but what was powerful, what was powerful and what came across to me was the stripping away of a safety net. And if we are honest about the common, we must put back the safety net. Now, we, we always have to refresh our politics. And I think in thinking about the precariat previously and now thinking about the common, what we share, there's a potential here. Because for those who might sit on the political left, what is social or what is socialist, we have potentially a new vision and a new manifesto. But actually, for those who might see themselves on, I'm not going to say the, because these days the right is not where the right used to be. It's, you know, it's not a hard right. But for those on the center right, <laughs> Of course, when you think about the common and you think about our heritage and you think about a tradition that goes back to the 13th century, there's something deeply conservative to conserve about this agenda. So there's something in this for everyone, and I recommend it to you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you, Guy. We have about a bit more than 10 minutes left. So what I propose we do, given limited time, um, and also in, in the interest of a discussion commons, is we have one round of questions. Please keep your comments um, concise. We haven't got time for long discussions. Guy will be standing and doing some signatures outside afterwards. There's a chance to engage with him, so please bear that in mind. Okay, who would like to speak? Uh, right. Yes, are you at the front? Yeah, yeah. Here's our microphone. Hi, um, thanks so much. That was um, super interesting and uh, very useful. Um, you all presented the idea of the commons as very much as a national um, commons, and um, I run an organisation called World Basic Income, and we look at the commons as an international space, um, especially some of, the, some of the specific commons that were mentioned, the atmosphere, a frequent flyer, levy, um, the impact of those activities definitely fall internationally, and um, um, I would like to hear what, what your thoughts are on how... Um, how and when it's right to internationalise that commons. Okay, thank you. At the back there, yeah. 
Uh, thank you all three of you for very stimulating comments. Uh, a point that Caroline made that uh, I'd like you to follow up on. Uh, you mentioned surveillance capitalism, the title of a, a new book by uh, Shoshana Zuboff about the, uh, what the big internet companies have done to our private space. We normally think that's just individual. I think what she's talking about is another dimension of the commons about our right to our own private experience which has now been commodified by the Facebooks and Googles and how we might protect that to, to guarantee our democracy from being uh, owned by the big tech companies. Thank you. Okay, let's go over here, yeah, in the, the cap. Hi, yeah, um, it was a great lecture, but one of the problems that I have with the left at the moment, I mean, I'm on the left myself politically, is we seem to spend 80% of the time talking about what the problem is, and then about 20% of the time talking about potential solutions, but not really envisaging a life with those solutions in place. It's kind of like we're missing the story aspect that the right is getting right. That's why the right won Brexit. They gave us, the people, a story, um, whether it be true or not. And, and the left just doesn't seem to be giving us that story. So I think it's not really a question. Forgive me, I'm an engineer rather than uh, an economist. So we usually tend to think if something's buggered, how do we fix it? And we, we concentrate on that. Um, so for me, I'd just like to see the left sort of concentrate a bit more on that. Tell us the story of how we're going to make this world a better place, because I believe we can, and I think you're all exceptional examples of the people that can lead us there. So just try and concentrate on the, uh, on the story a little bit more of, of what we're going to do and how we're going to get there. Let's go over here. I'm trying to, we'll work around the room for a few more minutes and then get some, some responses. Hey, who would like to speak over here? Uh, I'm looking for a bit more diversity. Any, any women want to speak over there? Yeah. Uh, female? Yes. In the, no? That's the, 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 Higher up and up with the stripe. No, to the right, to the right. I'll take it. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, Kate Ashbrook from the Open Spaces Society. Brilliant talks. Thank you, everybody. Um, I really love Guy's um, 44 articles, his charter for the commons, and I really want to see that happen. I mean, I'm interested particularly in the land commons, so um, stuff about freedom to roam and greater rights and greater sharing and um, public forests, all that is wonderful. So how is it going to happen? We absolutely have to get together and make it happen. We can't just go on talking. We've got to do. So, Guy, tell us what's to happen next. Uh, what, uh, one more question, and then I'll ask the panel to speak. Who would like to... Yeah, here, front. In the past, the defence of commons uh, happened uh, quite violently. We had the English Civil War. And uh, now we have the Hong Kong situation where the defense of commons has led to confrontations between the people and the state. Is that what will take to get your 44, uh, uh, your 44, um, your manifesto to get through? Because like the engineer said, we can't just sit on our hands and do nothing. And uh, historically, uh, the gentleman beh uh, beside me says pitchforks and it seemed to have worked for America. And how do you disassociate to the idea of the commons from how of the impact it had on the Aboriginal peoples around the world? 
and can you use the commons to as an alternative to reparations for the enslaved who were the victims of the commons in Europe? Okay, some great questions there. Um, uh, great questions. We could spend a lot more than five minutes addressing them. I think we should get some responses now. So, Guy, please, please respond as you see, what, as you see fit. Well, thank, thank you very much for the questions. Um, uh, Laura at the front. Uh, there's a small section in the book, I'm doing more work on it now, about the plunder of the Blue Commons. It's, it's the latest phase. One company in the world owns 47% of all patents that have been taken out on the oceans. And one company owns a flow of income that's going to stretch into the future. It's an extraordinary story, but it's a plunder of our commons. And it is a shocking story. And I, I understand where you're coming from. We need an international dimension. Of course we do. And I propose some, some ideas on that, and you have some better ones. So I think, I think it is an international. It's international, it's national, and it's local, as, as David was making, making very clear. On the surveillance capitalism and digital data, the, the section in the book, which is, in a sense, a response to, to your question, I strongly believe that we need a big digital data levy so that 3% or 5% of all income generated by the big tech companies in this country should be effectively taxed. And that should be put into this fund that would be built up. And they pay hardly any corporation tax. They, they hardly pay any taxes. And, and, and I think it's very important, and this is part of the uh, charter that I recommend in the book, that we need a strategic strategic policy from all progressives, Labour parties, Green parties, whatever you name it, to roll back the intellectual property rights system. It is an absurdity that a company can take out a patent and often not actually want to do anything but stop others producing. A patent that is a result of publicly funded research which gives that company a monopoly profit stretching 20 years or 40 years into the future. It's completely unethical, it's completely immoral, and the research, as I mentioned in the book, shows in actual fact it does not stimulate innovation, which the defenders claim it does. It actually impedes innovation, it impedes technological change, and yet it gives monopolistic profit to a tiny number of plutocratic corporations. Part of the charter is that we should roll back the intellectual property rights system. The, the 44 articles are a narrative in a sense. And if I'd had a little bit more time, I would have spent more time on the actual articles. But what I've done in the past is when we've talked about how you would revive the commons, and Kate's points were excellent on that, and I learned so much from her and, and her group, is that you can identify an agenda with a lot of things that make up a narrative. We can revive our parks. We can get the right to roam strengthened. We can do so many things that are actually something that most people could agree on if we took the perspective that our commons has all those things that David was talking about. And the, the last question, 
is the question that taxes my mind more than any other. How are we going to get there? And I think the answer is ourselves. All of us have a responsibility to look ourselves in the mirror and say, are we doing something to get a new progressive agenda into reality? Are we organizing the precariat? Are we actually taking part and organizing and participating and using up our time and, yes, money and energy in a cause in which we believe passionately? If we can answer that question honestly, yes, we are, then we'll be well on the way to having a new progressive politics. But I wish, I wish so powerfully I was aged 20-something. Because to me, this is the most exciting period because we know we need a new progressive politics, but it's only going to come if we get off our backside and really do the hard yards and get angry. We may not need a revolution, but we certainly must revolt. And that way we'll get it. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, the, the question I wanted to focus on was the one about, about you know, why don't we have better stories? Because I, I, I think that really does go to the heart of it. And I, I wanted to um, commend a book actually by uh, George Monbiot called Out of the Wreckage. Uh, and this is a book that is absolutely about the stories that we are told about ourselves. Uh, and he compares that about with, with what he thinks the real story is, if you like. And so the story that we are told is that individual human beings are competitive. We're out for ourselves. We have to fight one another in order to get access to limited resources. And that's just the way the world is. And everything else, the whole kind of ideology of neoliberalism is kind of built on that assumption. And he has some wonderful examples, some real sort of empirical examples from having looked at anthropology going back many centuries that demonstrates that, in fact, human beings are the most cooperative species on the planet. And he has some wonderful examples about how even just even if you look at a couple of really tiny kids, how they can help one another. And he builds this whole story about actually we should reject that story about ourselves. That is not who we are. We are much, much better than that. And when you start to change that story around about who we are and therefore almost what we have a right to expect, not just for ourselves but for each other, then it feels to me that that's a really transformative moment. And so, yeah, I, I, I think there are lots of stories that we need to tell, but the stories about who we are as human beings and, and, and as a species, who we can be, is, is incredibly important. People have, have stressed the importance around, around practical solutions as well, and I, I uh, focused a little bit on a basic income scheme. And, you know, to be honest, the Green Party has been banging on about a basic income scheme for decades. And it's really exciting now that John McDonnell is asking Guy Standing to write books about, or at least reports, not sure, not sure it's books, but anyway, reports about, about basic income. Uh, there, was, there was a question about land uh, in the other uh, corner of, of, of the room. And when it comes to land, a land value tax seems to be such an obvious way of capturing the value that is, you know, almost overnight can be added to a piece of land simply by the granting of planning permission for it. No one has actually done anything to make that piece of land different. That piece of land still belongs in the broadest sense to all of us, but someone has made a big profit through the acquisition of that planning permission. And if we were to share that 
through a land value taxation that would basically tax the, the benefit that you get from the particular use of land, that would be a way of sharing that out as well. So to be honest, I don't think we're lacking in, in the policies. And I don't think we're even lacking in, in the stories if we go out there and search for them. What we are lacking is, is the political will, which takes us right back to the, to the final question in the sense about how do we, we muster the political will to, to make the changes that we know can happen. In a sense, we know how to do it. What's, what's lacking is that, is that political will. And of course, uh, you know, we could be here for another few hours discussing about how to generate political will. But I think two things are important. One is... You know, that sense of those examples out there that have demonstrated how people have done it before. And, and you know, the, the, the Charter of the Forest itself is a, is a wonderful example of, of, of people having come together with a, with a vision of how things can happen. So I think partly it's about learning what's gone before and, and, and taking inspiration from that. But I think it, is, it also does play right back into the civic commons that both Guy and, and David talked about. And, and I do think that we need to enable people to believe that, that change can happen both through their own actions locally but also through our antiquated and deeply unjust electoral system and, and I'm sorry if this sounds like special pleading but when you have an electoral system that at the last election basically ignored the views of 68% of the views that, of the votes that were cast because they stacked up in places under first past the post where already enough votes have been cast to get someone over the line then when you're ignoring 68% of the population, then it's not surprising that anger grows and grows. And I think you could make a really strong case to say, you know, potentially, perhaps, you know, Brexit might not even have, have been that over, over sort of boiling over of, of, of anger that it was if people's views had been listened to and respected and responded to on, you know, by systematic governments along the way, because those people who voted leave, and I know there are many different views on, on why people voted leave, but for those people who voted leave because they wanted to send a real message that the status quo is intolerable, were absolutely right, because for all of the reasons that we've heard tonight, the status quo is intolerable. I would differ with them in terms of the solution to that, and I think it's about transformation at home rather than leaving the EU that would actually address some of those problems. But I absolutely accept the fact that their ability to raise those issues and have them heard has been systematically shut down by an electoral system that is designed not to hear anybody who doesn't live in a swing seat, essentially, the marginals uh, of this country. So I think changing that civic situation would be a help. Well, I think there are two questions that particularly spoke to me. The one was the, the international context, uh, which I thought was very well made, but it linked to the last question as well. Um, you know, we're, we're meeting at a time when there have been these enormous, violent, deeply worrying fires across the Amazon. Um, a friend of mine who is an international lawyer, uh, he generally um, fights cases in the International Criminal Court, um, prosecuting um, dictators, army chiefs who've murdered and butchered people in violent, um, aggressive wars, um, has put forward this suggestion with a group of other lawyers that actually 
something like the Amazon, where it looks like so many of those fires are entirely intentional and maybe even state-sponsored, ought to be crimes against humanity. If that is not an example of the plunder of the commons, I don't know what is. And if Bolsonaro isn't an example of borrowing from the Trump-Boris rulebook, I don't know what a national populist looks like. So I think that growing agenda is one to watch. I think you're absolutely right to raise those fundamental issues also of land that also have an international perspective. And there is no greater injustice than the injustice globally done to indigenous people all over the world. Um, and actually, in countries like South Africa, that have had fundamental systems of subjugation and oppression, some might argue, and if Winnie Mandela were on this stage, she would have argued that even where you've had truth and reconciliation, the bit that was left off was land. And it remains the contested issue in uh, countries like South Africa. Um, and I mean, I, I suppose globally we have these fantastic organizations that came out of war in Europe that gave us organizations like UNESCO, which is the idea that heritage that sits in one country should be globally protected because of what it says for humanity. And we need to deepen and wider those notions of what we share. The point that was raised about the story we're telling is fantastically well made. Um, it is definitely the case that um, on so many levels that if you compare, let's take the simple narrative story of Brexit. One said, take back control. I think that's probably one of the most powerfully um, selfish, meaningless slogans, but bloody effective in modern times. And the other said better together. And the, frankly, the better together did not say enough. Um, the take back control was this sort of poignant idea. You know, we all feel out of control in our lives in different points. What take back, what the, you know, somehow you could get it back, you could rein it in. It was very powerful. The left does struggle with telling those stories. And, I mean, in my experience in 20 years in politics, there are three kinds of elections. There are status quo elections, where it's very likely the country is going to vote for the incumbent government. People broadly want more of the same. Let's give them another go. Let's see. They're quite boring elections. Um, um, Labour had one in 2005. It was clear that we weren't going to lose. Then there are fear elections. The right do those very well. George Bush did it successfully in the United States a number of times. Uh, Thatcher did them very convincingly. And we've got a ramped up version with the double act of Farage and Boris. Um, and then there are hope elections. My friend Barack Obama did that in the States. And indeed, the Blair government of 1997 did that. It says something about 
when you're on the progressive end, whether it's the centre or the left, hope is a key ingredient of the story you've got to tell. And you are right, the temptation on the left is to sink into the critique, and it is not usually sufficient. There's also a tendency, um, I saw this in the Gordon Brown period, New Labour period, and we're doing it a bit, uh, unfortunately. It's a bit like opening up the old yellow pages. You get this list of things, but nothing that binds them together about the kind of society that you're trying to create. So look, I'm going to have a little attempt in the book that I've got coming out, but it's a little one. Did he mention he's having a book coming out? Um, <laughs> I had a first attempt in my last book, but no, but seriously, <laughs> seriously, it's quite, it is to say it's quite hard because Caroline is right about the, the better nature of ourselves, but that sort of selfish, me, myself and I, competitive, it's their fault, not yours, is very powerful. It's why those of us on the left and the progressive side of the debate have to work harder, have to strain our brains stronger than too often I see us doing. Okay. Thank you. Just quickly to say that Guy is signing some books outside. Uh, there are a limited number of books, so first come, first served. Uh, thanks, to all, thanks to Guy, thanks to Caroline, thanks to David. Fantastic debate and discussion today. And thanks to all of you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.